Hi, everybody, and uh, welcome to Baker McKenzie Pension Team's August podcast. I'm Jonathan Sharp. I'm one of the partners in the pension team. Now, I'm recording this from a hot attic bedroom in Turkey in August, so you might hear a little bit of a mix of seagulls and someone banging on roofs um, in the background. We've also got um, on the podcast uh, a few other people that I'd like to introduce. So we've got uh, Sarah Hickling. So um, Sarah, whereabouts are you at the moment? So I'm near Epsom in Surrey um, and I'm a knowledge lawyer in the pensions team. Okay, brilliant. And uh, Sarah's going to be providing an overview of recent kind of pension developments. And then we've also got a kind of a special guest, not from the pension team, uh, Priyanka Osmane, who's from our restructuring and insolvency team. So Pri, kind of whereabouts are you at the moment? Hi, Johnny. Hi, everyone. I'm in London in my home office, trying to keep myself as cool as possible. It's rather small and rather hot, um, not that working is, too well. <laughs> that is the theme at the moment, isn't it? The heat. And then Pri's joined us just to explain kind of some of the significant changes that have been going on in relation to insolvency legislation. And then last but not least, um, we've got Vicky Thompson-Hill, another of our kind of know-how lawyers, Vicky is going to be talking about the regulator's recent guidance on super funds and what that means for us. And uh, Vicky, kind of whereabouts are you? How are you doing? I'm well, thank you, Johnny. Um, I'm in an equally boiling um, home office attic in South London, so slowly melting right. away. Okay, yeah, attics are definitely the worst place to be, aren't they, at this sort of time? Okay, so um, first of all, we're going to be talking about kind of an overview of kind of recent like pension developments. So I don't know about you, just in relation to the news, I've been kind of a bit of fatigue over the past few months, all about track and trace, so the school's going to go up and, you know, fingers crossed they will, you know, PPE, exam results, that kind of thing. But what I'd really like to know is kind of what's going on in the world of pension news. So um, Sarah's going to help us with that. Sarah, can you explain, has it been kind of a quiet time lately? Everybody's on holiday doing their staycations or, you know, quarantining after returning from kind of Italy, kind of what's, what's been going on? I know, well, it has been really um, busy still on the pensions front, despite the fact that everyone's trying to, uh, yeah, desperately have a break. But it's the uh, the pension schemes bill has started moving again through Parliament. So um, that's the bill that contains lots and lots of changes to current pensions legislation, including changes uh, that are intended to increase the pensions regulators' powers. So there was a bit of a hiatus for that bill during lockdown, but it started moving again. So it has now finished all its stages in the Lords and it's moving, uh, it's moved to the Commons. Um, There still isn't a firm timetable for when it will complete all its remaining stages, but I think we're expecting it to sort of move through Parliament and get royal assent potentially by the end of the year. But okay, course, so, it, yeah. so it might be a nice kind of Christmas present for us then, perhaps. It could be that. It could be just what we've all wanted. Yeah, exactly. But it's the I think the courts, interestingly, have been been busy during lockdown as well. Or that might just be because judges have been at home writing the judgments that they heard pre-lockdown. But we have had as uh, we have had a, a lot of judgments. We've had a whole spate of judgments around RPI CPI which unfortunately we don't have time to go into today. But we've also had a court of appeal judgment in uh, the Safeway and Newton case. And I did want to touch a bit on that 
today. Um, that uh, Court of Appeal decision is all about when the scheme sponsored by Safeway Supermarket closed the barber window in um, in the scheme. And I'm sure a lot of listeners already know, but the barber window relates to an issue which I think most DB schemes have faced, which is how and when to equalise retirement dates between men and women. And in the Safeway case, uh, because of the way that equalisation had been implemented, there were various possible dates for when the barber window could have closed. So it is quite sort of date heavy, this case. But from Safeway's perspective, I think the key thing is, is that the earliest date that the window um, could have been closed, the better from a cost perspective. Um, And Safeway had initially argued a 1st of December 1991 date for the barber window closing. And before the Court of Appeal decision that we've just had, Safeway took its case and it went to the CJEU. And the CJE ruled that a date almost five years later than Safeway had originally wanted um, should actually be used. So the date that the CJEU said the barber window had closed was the 2nd of May 1996. So five years later than than Safeway had had really ideally wanted. But what this Court of Appeal um, decision is all about is it was really Safeway having almost like a second bite of the cherry because what Safeway was attempting to argue was that it should actually be a slightly earlier date than the CGHEU had said, but still in 1996. It was only uh, it was arguing in the Court of Appeal that there should be a date for closing the window just a few months earlier than the CJEU had said. But even though there was only a few months difference, it still represented a significant saving for Safeway if the Court of Appeal allowed it to go with that slightly earlier 1996 date. And Safeway's argument was that the slightly earlier date should be the 1st of January 1996. The whole argument sort of centred around the interaction between UK domestic law um, and European law. And essentially what the Court of Appeal ruled was that it accepted Safeway's argument that before uh, the 1st of January 1996, that EU law um, applying to how benefits should be equalised still applied. But after that date, it became solely a UK domestic law matter um, and retrospective amendments were permitted under uh, UK law subject to certain requirements being met. So where we end up is that Safeway gets to have a slightly earlier closure for its barber window. Although it's hugely interesting for lawyers, um, anything to do with barber is massively interesting to pensions lawyers. Actually, I think for most schemes, it might not have a hugely um, significant impact. I think really it's only likely to be of um, any real significance for schemes which executed deeds to equalise retirement dates after the 1st of January 1996 and before the 5th of April 1997, which had purported retrospective effect to before 1st of January 1996. So that's all quite complex in terms of date patterns. And actually, I think in practice, we think they're unlikely to be a huge amount of schemes in with that specific sort of date fact pattern. But but of course, if you are there and you do have a scheme that has that those narrow circumstances that Sarah's mentioning, so you equalise somewhere between kind of January 96, April 97, and it was respective, do get in touch and we can save you uh, some money potentially. So thank you, Sarah, for that. Okay, so now we're going to move on to um, the insolvency legislation. 
so this is the Corporate Insolvency and Governance Act. And if people seem to be calling it SEGA. So it sounds a bit like kind of cigar without the R on the end, SEGA. And then Pri, who is much more knowledgeable than me about the act, is going to um, give us a bit of um, background to this one. So Pri, can I hand over to you, please, for that? Yeah, of course, Johnny. I'll probably just call it the act through the rest of the podcast. But yes, this act got royal assent on the 25th of June, um, and it had a bit of a whistle-stop journey through Parliament because it only started its life as a bill five weeks before that on the 20th of May. It's fair to say that insolvency lawyers are getting very excited by the measure that this um, act incorporates. It has temporary measures which directly respond to the COVID-19 pandemic that we're all facing at the moment. So it deals with specific points around statutory demands and wrongful trading liability for directors, which are at the moment in place until the 30th of September, but could be extended further. But it's the permanent measures which bring about you know, fundamental wholesale changes to big parts of UK insolvency law that practitioners are really quite focused on. And those have been in the pipeline for a number of years. Um, I'm only going to talk about two of those measures today, because I think those are the ones that people with the pensions focus are going to be most interested in. And that's um, the standalone moratorium as well as the restructuring plan. The, so the standalone moratorium, it, it's been introduced by the Act and it's a freestanding moratorium which will be available to most companies. And it's going to allow the directors to remain in control of the company, although there'll be some oversight by a licensed insolvency practitioner, which is going to be a new role and it's called a monitor. And the idea behind the moratorium is that it's intended to give companies in financial distress breathing space to explore and sort of make it easier to put in place rescue and restructuring options without any creditor action. And previously, this type of moratorium has really only been available in insolvency proceedings, so in administration, for example. But this one is different because the directors remain at the helm of the company and they continue to make the day-to-day decisions. And so in sort of, you know, insolvency jargon, that's called a debtor in possession proceeding. Generally speaking, the moratorium is going to be widely available. So it's going to be available to all companies that are or are likely to become unable to pay their debts and where it is and remains likely that the moratorium is going to result in the rescue of the company as a going concern. So I guess unpicking that a little bit it's not it's meant to be seen as a bridge to you know a company coming out at the other end as a going concern it's not meant to be a bridge to an insolvency proceeding and so that's why the test is to- twofold there has to be some element of financial distress but equally it's not meant to be an inevitable insolvency that this company ends up into that's not really what the moratorium is there for in terms of who can access it as i said most companies accept for excluded entities, which basically means companies that are already part of some sort of specialist insolvency regime, so like banks, investment banks, um, parties to capital management arrangements. The scope of the moratorium is broadly modelled on the moratorium that's currently available in administration, although there are important differences. So the, the basic position under the moratorium is that once the company accesses it, it grants the company a payment holiday from most pre-moratorium debts. So that's sort of debts that accrued prior to the moratorium coming into place or relate to agreements that were in place before the moratorium. But there are exceptions to that payment holiday. And the ones that a lot of people are focused on in 
the insolvency profession is the fact that, you know, debt needs to be serviced in the moratorium. But what's relevant here for a pensions audience is that one of the exceptions to the pension payment holiday is that there's an exception for wages or salary arising under a contract of employment. And then when you look deeper into the definitions, that definition of wages or salary includes a contribution to an occupational pension scheme. So I guess, Johnny, it'd be really you know, good to hear from you what this really means in the context of pension contributions. What do we think does and doesn't need to be paid once a company is in a moratorium? Yeah, well, that's a, that's a really good question because that's something that pension lawyers have been getting very um, excited about. So as you said, Pri, it relates to this kind of wages or salary arising under a contract of employment. And then it refers to, that's then defined as referring to contributions to an occupational pension scheme. So I think what we can say in terms of what's definitely in is, you know, for, for most companies now, they've got some kind of DC uh, pension arrangements in place. So if it's um, contributions to a DC occupational pension scheme, which could, for example, be, you know, a master trust, then those kind of pension contributions could, you know, still be in, you know, they can still be made. But I think for those of you listening, you'll be thinking, well, actually, isn't there a huge gap there? There's plenty of companies now around that have personal pension schemes rather than occupational pension schemes. And it begs the question, well, can contributions still be made to that type of pension scheme? Well, so there are kind of arguments that it should be included, but it's by kind of no means clear, really. I mean, the way I look at it is from a from a policy perspective, there should be no difference um, for a company, whether they've got an occupational pension scheme or a personal pension scheme in terms of how contributions should be treated. And I think there are certain interpretations that you can make to show that it should be included. But the really odd thing here is why the government have decided to draft it and just refer to occupational pension schemes when they could have just added you know, three or four words and included a reference to personal pension schemes as well and really clarified the situation. So there is kind of a little bit of, um, you know, lack of lack of clarity there really in terms of how that should be um, treated. The other main area on the DB side where there's a lack of clarity really is about whether kind of deficit repair contributions should be included. My own view on that is that it's most likely that they um, aren't included. And then Pri, when you were kind of introducing it earlier and referring to the fact that it refers to, it's a definition in the context of wages and salary. I mean, for me, that sounds like ongoing obligations, you know, paid for employees at the moment. I picture the employee kind of with their pay slip. There's a reference to pension contributions made on it. It's referring to that. And then here, kind of while there's arguments that you could say that, um, deficit contributions do relate to employees and wages. You know, actually a large portion of deficit contributions relates to deferred pensioners. They might not even relate to any current employees if the pension scheme closed a long time ago. And so in that situation, I suppose for me personally, you know, I think um, it does seem kind of kind of less likely actually that those deficit repair contributions will be included. Although I recognize it's up for grabs that there are still some um, arguments out there. And then Pre, can I um, hand back over to you now just to talk about the restructuring plan and that yeah. aspect? Yeah, no, of course. So the restructuring plan is 
based on the existing English law scheme, which is available under the Companies Act. Um, but this has a new ability to allow for cross-class cram-down. And I think the first test is whether or not you can say that at all. Um, it's effectively built on the existing scheme and is used, intended to be used in the same broad situation where the current scheme would be used, which is to try and implement a compromise or arrangement between a company and its creditors or members. Um, the difference between the existing scheme and this restructuring plan or what some people in the insolvency market already call the super scheme is the fact that it can only be accessed by a company in financial difficulties. And there's also a difference in the thresholds required to pass the uh, scheme in that it only requires the majority in value of each of the class of creditors who are voting. So there's no requirement for a majority in number to also vote in favor, uh, which is what the existing scheme has. I guess the game changer this restructuring plan brings in is this ability to uh, cram down creditors. And what does that really mean? That means that if there has been a restructuring plan proposed, um, and you know, in a typical scheme or a restructuring plan, you may have different classes of creditors. So you might have senior creditors, junior creditors, possibly even trade creditors, and you would break them down by different classes and each class would have to vote on the plan. And in a typical scheme, so the existing scheme, you'd have to have each class of those creditors vote in favor for the of the scheme before it could be implemented well under the restructuring plan even if the plan isn't approved by 75 percent in value by each creditor in each class it could still be potentially sanctioned by the court there's obviously a bunch of tests here um which is that if the plan is to be sanctioned by the court it has to be confident that the members of the dissenting class aren't going to be any worse off than they would in whatever the relevant alternative for the company would have been and that the plan has sort of proactively also been approved by the class who would receive a payment and has a genuine economic interest in the company again in the relevant alternative so i think there's going to be a fair bit of work cut out for practitioners and judges when the first few restructuring plans go through the courts. Um, the first one is actually going through the courts at the moment, being proposed by Virgin Atlantic. The focus is really going to be on, well, what is the relevant alternative and absent this restructuring plan going through what is going to happen to this company? So I guess, you know, this is a very big and significant change in the restructuring tools available under English law. And I guess a question that comes to me, Johnny, is do we think there's sort of scope for the restructuring plan to be used in the pensions field? Do you think it could be used to cram down pension liabilities in any way? Yeah, no, that's a, that's a great question, Pri. I think um, I will try and say, uh, yeah, I'm not going to try your cram down the full term that you were using um, earlier. Now, kind of my, my kind of feeling on this is that the role of the court and the judge is going to be, you know, really kind of key here. And obviously, whether the trustees are on side with what's being proposed and pre kind of you've explained, you know, the role of the court and the ability to object earlier. So what I think is if you've got a situation where you've got trustees, you know, they're being negotiated with alongside other creditors and a situation where they agree to um, a change in their recovery plan. So let's say this, I actually, you know, the deficit contributions, they can be paid over a longer period and the trustees agree to it. Then I can see that being the kind of thing where as part of this process, that's all agreed and included. But on the other hand, if you've got a situation where a company kind of wants to impose 
a new set of contributions on a pension scheme. Let's say the trustees aren't happy with it, they disagree with it and how that's being treated. Then given that you've got a whole separate set of legislation and a different regime under the Pensions Act, you know, 2004, the scheme funding legislation for dealing with, you know, the setting of like pension contributions, you've got the regulator, the pensions regulator involved in that process. I think judges actually would be quite reluctant to approve a restructuring plan in that context where you've got objections from the trustees or, you know, potentially the regulator as well. The other aspect to think about here is in relation to Section 75 debts. And I think perhaps it's a similar sort of story here, really, about the role of the courts being um, important. So if, if you've got a situation and there's an agreement between you know, the company and the trustees to say, they both decide, OK, well, what we're going to do is we're going to trigger the debt in a pre-planned way, and then we'll agree to a compromise of that debt. I think it's something that might be possible in this type of context where the trustees are looking at it and going, actually, we want to go down this route because we think it's better than what we get through the alternative insolvency process. And it'd be some type of process where you know benefits are bought out above the PPF level. So some type of PPF plus here where they're looking at getting something better than on insolvency. But again, you know, on the other hand, if you've got a situation where the trustees aren't satisfied that that the position under the proposed cram down is better than what they get on insolvency. Then I think if a judge was looking at this and the trustees weren't happy and weren't convinced about that, then I think the judges see that as a re reason to you know reject you know the restructuring plan or at least that aspect of it for that on for that reason really because from what you've been saying earlier, pre you know the judge would look at it and say, well actually the relevant alternative here might be better for the trustees than what's being proposed under the restructuring plan. Thank you, Pri. Okay, so we're going to turn now to um, super funds. Um, Vicky is going to speak about that. So Vicky, it's been a long time that we've been waiting for the um, super funds guidance. So can you just give an introduction? Just tell us what it's all about, please. Yeah, sure. So this is the new interim guidance from the pensions regulator. Um, and it's going to form the regulatory framework for super funds um, or sort of DB consolidators, as they're otherwise known, um, until new legislation is passed um, to bring in a sort of formal regime. From what we can hear, this could be at least three years away. So for anyone who doesn't follow the pensions press with as much interest as us, a super fund model is one which allows for the consolidation of the DB schemes liabilities into a new occupational pension scheme. Um, and for the employer and trustees to then discharge themselves of their pension liabilities completely. And the industry has been waiting for this guidance since late 2018, early 2019, um, when the DWP um, held a consultation on DB consolidation. We did hear that the guidance was slightly rushed out by the regulator, um, as a couple of the current consolidators on the market were understandably getting a bit impatient about transacting with some certainty and maybe also that the regulator was a bit spooked by the recent Aspinall, which was a kind of capital-backed deal where the parties didn't actually seek regulator clearance, as far as we understand. Um, so that's mm. a bit of a background. Hopefully. Yeah, no, interesting, interesting background. And what does the actual guidance kind of look like then? How, how did it turn out? Yeah, so there aren't many surprises. Um, the main bit of guidance was for the super fund industry. And I should say that there's, the regulator's promised a bit more guidance on various things. 
Um, but the guidance that we've had was about the shape of the new regime. It isn't that different from the regime proposed in 2018. So the overarching objective is still for there to be a very high probability in the super fund of members' benefits being paid in full, with the benchmark still being set at 99% to give everyone certainty. Uh, clearance um, from the pensions regulator is expected before a transaction can proceed. There are certain minimum specific funding requirements that the super fund has to meet, um, and any transfer into that super fund mustn't dilute the minimum funding level. Uh, there'll be a few triggers. So if the funding of the, of the super fund goes below a certain level, money from the capital buffer will flow into the scheme, uh, or in the worst case, a wind-up will have to take place. And there is a restriction on value extraction, which is quite interesting for the industry, from a super fund for at least three years. Um, and we've heard that actually no one's keen on there being profit extraction in, in the short term at all. Um, and the regulators said they will look again in three years' time to see if, well, certainly if the legislation isn't in place by then. So see, see how that one turns out. And then finally, there are a lot of governance requirements that you'd expect for this kind of arrangement, including around investment, for example. Um, so in its guidance to the trustees, it's quite an interesting bit. The regulator says that trustees again, understandably, must be satisfied that members' benefits must be better protected in the super fund than in the current scheme. It's reiterated the policy set out by the DWP previously um, that the transfer must be in the best interest of members and, and, a, and the buyout cannot be a realistic prospect either now or in the full bits foreseeable future for that scheme, um, which the regulator considers to be the next three to five years. And that's what the industry is calling the kind of gateway entry into a super fund. So that's quite a big responsibility for trustees and quite a bit of advice that had to be taken, certainly on the covenant side. Um, and as I said, more guidance is promised in areas such as the actual transfer to the super fund, reporting um, and capital buffers. Mm, thank you. Yeah, I, when I when I kind of looked at the guidance, I suppose one of my thoughts was that things like the capital extraction, you know, that would be a really big deal if you're looking to enter the market, that you can't take any profit out for the next three years. And you don't know when there's legislation, whether that would be continued or whether there'd be a change and there would be some option to take um, money out. So I guess, Vicky, kind of with your kind of crystal ball, what do you think then in terms of when we'll actually see the first deal? Yeah, well, actually, it's interesting because it doesn't sound like, just on your point there, about any of the, the capital backers being that spooked. I think there was an announcement just on Monday that the Pension Super Fund has got some new funding from a Finnish backer. So that's, that's quite interesting. Um, in terms of a deal, I think we've heard that both of the two main players are set to try and have a deal this year. Um, and actually, there is apparently a third uh, consolidator waiting in the wings, which is quite exciting. So I don't think it will be that long by the sounds of things. Okay. well. I'm, I'm trying to think what specific date we need to hold you to that, but I don't think you've. Uh, I think you've been suitably vague. You're not saying by Christmas or by the autumn then. So um, let's okay. let's let's see what happens. But I guess I guess the kind of the bigger question for schemes out there, if they're thinking about, well, what's my end game? What's my kind of long term goal? We've always had, you know, buyout has been there for kind of years and years, and then now we've got this option of super funds is there what, what are the other kind of new options out there that schemes yeah. might be kind of looking at or considering no it's interesting because i think when we started talking about super funds a couple of years ago there weren't as many kind of end game as we told them call them alternatives out there apart from buyout that were a real competitor 
Um, I know that there was that sort of slightly surprising leak from the Bank of England sort of um, um, saying that they weren't happy at all about the new regime. Um, but since the Aspinall deal that I mentioned, we know that there are other um, insured and non-insured products out there in the market, not to mention DB Master Trust, which we shouldn't forget. Um, so it's kind of query whether the super fund market will be as big as we thought it might be. It will definitely be a major change in the market. Um, but I think it might just be one of the various options that trustees um, will be thinking about when assessing their sort of longer term funding options. Um, so it might be buyout, it might be something else. Um, and I think maybe trustees might be a bit nervous about going ahead and transacting without the legislation when they're going to be losing their link to their employer and their covenant. And I think talking about what kind of schemes might be interested in this super funds, obviously that gateway requirement we talked about is going to be massive. Um, it might be quite a narrow group of schemes that will actually be eligible or able to really join one of these super funds. So it's ultimately going to be schemes that can't afford to buy out in the next three to five years. So maybe have a weaker employer covenant, maybe with lots of deferred members, which makes buyout a bit more expensive. But interestingly, with a feasible way of securing a cash injection to get you up to the required level of funding to go into a super fund. So maybe as part of a transaction or with a sort of maybe with an overseas parent with, with funds. Um, but I think that allure of severing the employer responsibility, which you won't potentially get with some of the other options, will be really attractive. Um, although saying that some consultants we've been talking to query how much cheaper a super fund option actually might be in practice. Apparently, bulk annuity pricing is still cheaper than last year. Um, and actually, who knows, the capital back solutions apparently are, are more suited to larger schemes. So maybe the super fund market will want to go for smaller schemes. Um, but certainly the impact of COVID is going to be huge. Um, what we were reading the other day is that quite a few companies now have at least an extra 18 months to wait until they can reach their sort of end game position, whatever that might be. Mm. And you've, you've kind of really highlighted the role of the covenant advisors in all this and the kind of importance of the advice that they'll give. What do you think about the role of of kind of lawyers in all this? What, what's the kind of thing that we'll be doing on, on these types of you know cases and projects? Well, I think, you know, people might say I would say this, but there is going to be an awful lot of legal work to do. Um, going into super fund is a huge responsibility um, for trustees. And I think a lot of people have actually commented in the industry about what a difficult decision that could be, that once or only decision for trustees. Um, so there'll be a lot of due diligence to do, um, helping prepare the scheme as you would for a buyout prepare a scheme, go into a consolidator, lots of benefit specifications, documentation, working closely with the um, actuarial advisors and obviously the covenant advisors. Um, so it's really helping get the scheme in shape and making sure that, that the rules of the, of the super fund work and that the trustees are comfortable with you know, how the balance of powers will work. So it's certainly not going to be a straightforward task. Interesting. Okay. So um, yeah, I think there's a lot out there in terms of kind of thinking about kind of when the first deal might be and the level of kind of diligence you know required as schemes kind of look at that and think about it and um so we'll we'll kind of wait see what happens there okay well that brings us to the end of our kind of august summer podcast uh, we really hope that you've found it um useful i'd like to say thank you to um sarah and pre and vicky for their um, contributions and comments on the different items if you're listening and you do have any um questions um, from what you've heard, do feel free to contact your usual kind of Becker McKenzie contact or feel free to contact me, Jonathan Sharp. But um, that's it. I'd just like to say um, thank you very much for listening. Mm-hmm.